We are all connected. So join me as I talk to like-minded people about topics that are appropriate to the current times we are living in. My name is Lerato Shabalala and this is Relevant. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Relevant with me, Lerato Shabalala. Remember, um, you can access this podcast on my um, website, leratoshabalala.com, or my YouTube channel, because me and my guests, we, we, we deserve to be seen by you, okay? But you can also listen to the um, audio version whenever you listen to your podcast, whether it's um, Apple Podcasts, Iona, or Spotify. Um, I'm very, very excited about this conversation that I'm going to have today. It's a conversation that probably I should have started with when I started Relevant, but I think it's fantastic to um, summarize the year with it and have this be one of my last guests for 2020. She's somebody that I have admired. We have uh, mutual friends. And we both have worked in the newspaper lifestyle uh, uh, section. And I was always sweating bullets on the other side of the papers because she was on the other side of the papers. And I looked to see what she did every Sunday. And we have both um, sort of transcended the world of uh, journalism, which is where we both started, into space, corporate spaces where I believe both of us are coming in as ourselves. She is a feminist. She is a phenomenal woman. She is the head of, what you are, let me just tell you, this is Gail Smith, but you are, you're amazing, Gail. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> hey, Lirato. I'm very well. I mean, how can I not be well after such a lovely introduction? I'm really well. Um, I'm living my best life, as the kids say. Hey. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. I think that's what Kovivi has taught me. I think, yeah. you know, they were predicting we'd be dead by, all be dead by July. So I just decided I was going to live my best life this year. So I am. Oh, very that's well. That's fantastic. We we deserve, one of the things I'm realizing is that we all deserve to live our best lives. So you are the head of strategic communications and spokesperson for the Soul City Institute for Social Justice. So people who know this podcast know that I actually want somebody to print me out a shirt that says Social Justice Girl because I have also become that uh, person who the older I get, I just can't shut up. I just can't sit by and not say anything. And um, I, I'm, I'm glad when I see other women like you and you've paved the, the path um, much longer. You've been working this much longer than me. So my first question to you is, I, okay, so I follow Gail on Instagram, by the way. So I went and snooped a little bit and I liked some of her pictures. And one of the things we posted this week was that in 1990, um, you worked as a model so you could get money and take a gap year and go overseas. And I thought, what an interesting thing, because a lot of the times people associate feminism with not being feminine, with um, you won't do a job that, and you're already a feminist by then. So I guess my, my first question is, what did in your early life modeling teach you about feminism? Well, modeling taught me a lot about feminism. I mean, modeling really sort of entrenched what I was learning about feminism or what I'd learned about feminism. I mean, I think that my mother was the kind of woman who, my mother was a feminist. So when I was kind of 13, 14 and just becoming a girl, my, you know, and people were going, oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, she's so beautiful. My mother was the one would say, who would say, but is that enough? Yeah. You know, and so my mother really, you know, my mother could see, okay, this one's going to be tall. I was already six foot by 14. Sure. People always, yeah, people always asking, is she a model? People were always trying to get me to enter my South Africa. People were always going on about, she's so beautiful. And remember, it was the 80s. And so my paramount colorness was what was in vogue, right? Yes. I was an acceptable form of blackness. And so yeah. my beauty always being acknowledged. And I think that it was my mother, you know, who was just a wonderful, wonderful woman. She just, 
she just since you know said yeah well beauty is it's kind of an un you know it's an inherited inherited privilege you have no say over how you come out of the womb and so you can't just rely on your beauty you know um and so my mother emphasized other things but she was also a very practical woman and so I did enroll with a modeling agency and I did do, do I mean, I really did. I was never a glamour model, but what really paid was the editorial. So I did a lot of sales house and that sort of thing. And that's where the money really was. My yeah. mother was like, go make them. Oh yeah, yeah. My mother was like, go make the money. <laughs> but she also taught me to be vigilant, you know? Mm. So for me, feminist but I was also just um, cognizant of the fact that my beauty I mean I'm saying this now with these big sort of high-fine intellectual sounding but they were very <laughs> baby ideas yes. but the modeling industry reinforced what I was learning as feminist at the same time through high school and into university um, it was reinforcing the values that we place on women and girls it was reinforcing just South African values in terms of color. Um, you know, the weaves were new those days, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I had hair that I could blow dry and it would, you know, and so people yes. often think, is that a weave? You know, they thought <laughs> I was some, you know, all of that nonsense. Yes. So, you know, I mean, for me, and also you could make a lot of money as a girl. So I was, you know, I did it. I was at university. I literally would write university exams and then go do modeling assignments. So for me, it didn't, I didn't have any particular problem with modeling per se, because I also did other work. I also worked in other ways. I worked at Mnet when they were just starting. I worked in a division called multi-unit dwellings, MUDs, you know, when Mnet started, you know, so I did a whole array of things, but my family inculcated a love of working. So modeling was just another job for me. Um, and it's funny because I was at university with, um, Jackie, um, What's Oh, I thought you meant. No, yes, I think she's Basitani's sister, right? Yes, yes, yes. We were at roads together, and we were in adjoining houses, and we, of course, got to know each other because we Joburg girls, right? Yes. And in the eighties, black people found each other. So she was always saying, "Girl, let's enter this modeling competition. Oh, there's a Miss Somerset West. Oh, there's a let's go." And I'd be like, "Modeling? I'd be like beauty competition." <laughs> She entered, she won a car, she won this, she won that. And wow. then I, if I was smart, I would have entered Miss South Africa. I would have entered those competitions because it's also a way to make money. I'm not endorsing um, beauty competitions. I yeah. think they are inherently patriarchal. I think they are inherently offensive. Yeah. But I also see the utility they can have in a woman's life, right? Yeah. Um, so... I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, oh, more, more than answers my question. I mean, so I have two uh, questions that I want to ask you. So I'm going to just say, I think one of the things you mentioned in the, um, the, the feminist thing is um, executive produced by Khomuzoma, the wonderful Khomuzoma Zunyane. And one of the things you said there, but it's not the first question that I want to ask you, but it's because the two things are, are related to what you just said now. I just want to mention that you said something really potent that I want to ask you about how Winnie Mandela was able to see how beauty was a commodity. And ultimately, that's what you and I are talking about now with modeling, that it's, it's, it's a tool that can be used if you use it wisely. And I mean, you wrote a, a paper that you got distinctions for on Winnie Mandela, so we're probably going to spend a long time talking about her. But one of the things you said in it, you're also in the feminist thing, is that apartheid and patriarchy were conceptual twins. And I just love that. I stuck to it. I wrote it down. I remembered it. Um, I want to ask, when did you realize this? And for people who don't understand, what do you mean when you say apartheid and patriarchy are conceptual or were conceptual twins. Okay, it's not an it's not my original idea, and I do need to attribute um, Anne McClintock. Um, oh, okay. So I've been writing I've been writing a book for a long time on Winnie Mandela, and it's taken me. I well, it's I've given myself room because. 
you know, it's like Pandora's box. You just don't know what you're going to open when you open it. And I had no idea about what, what, where this book would take me. Like I had no concept and it took me to many, many, many dark places and many places about this country's history that I just didn't know. And it made me so, so, so much more aware of the debt of gratitude we owe to Wendy Mandela because mm -hmm. I was not able, I've been writing this book for years, but every time I peel a layer, I find another one. Then I peel a layer. Like, and, and so it's been going, you know. And so people are like, when's the book going to be finished? I'm like, I don't know. I'll hit send and I'll die when I'm 99. I don't know when the book's <laughs> going to end. But one of the things I wanted to do, and I'm always over ambitious in my writing because I really need to understand things for myself because I'm a, I'm a, a visual thinker. And so in order to understand Winnie, I realized I couldn't really understand Winnie. I couldn't understand the trajectory of her life unless I understood the backdrop to that trajectory. What was the backdrop to that trajectory? The backdrop to that trajectory was white supremacy in the form of segregation. She was born in, in segregation because 1936 and then apartheid, which came into being in 1948. So that's the background to her life. And in order to understand her and look at her from a revolutionary feminist perspective, I needed to understand the thing she was pushing back against. I need to needed to understand the sweep of white supremacist history from segregation all the way through apartheid in order to understand her life. And it was a very big task, right? Because what I was trying to do was juxtapose Winnie's life against the white male certainties of white supremacy, of segregation and apartheid. So this is what I was trying to do conceptually yeah. um, with, with the book. And in doing that, I don't know if you've read Anne McClintock's, I, I'll remember the name of the book before the end of the interview, but Anne McClintock is just brilliant. And I love how she writes and I love her analysis. But I, I was in doing all of this, something that she had said, her description of patriarchy just kept, you know, because as a writer, you read things, yes. you note them, and then your brain puts them away somewhere. And this thing yep. was bothering me. And eventually I went and I found my McClintock and I read it. And somewhere in there, she describes patriarchy as a system of domination, insubordination and dependence. And that's exactly what it is, right? Patriarchy was this construct where the pater familias owned not only the land, but also the people, the animals, the everything. So it was domination, control, and, you know, um, dependence. They depended on him. And it took me a few months of wrestling to realize that actually that description of patriarchy fits perfectly with apartheid because it was exactly that. It was a system of domination, insubordination and dependence. They not only wanted to dominate us and make us insubordinate, they also wanted us to be dependent on them, which is why they broke us economically so that our ongoing economic dependence was tied into some form of servitude to white supremacy. And so that was a defining moment in terms of understanding Winnie's life then, right? That she was, she was fighting to systems, apartheid and patriarchy, and they were actually conceptual twins because both posited white men at the top and native women, which she was, at the bottom. So that's really, it was in, in my work on Winnie Mandela and it, I mean, I've been, as I said, you know, I've been working for a long time and trying to build this narrative structure that makes sense for myself because everybody knows the story of Nelson and Winnie Mandela. I don't want to tell the story that everyone knows. Again, it's what's the point, right? Everyone knows the same story. So I'm trying to find a different way into the story. And so that is the, the way that I then went into it to build the sweep of her life and then create create this other structure that she was pushing against. So yeah, that's where those two systems and the conceptual twins idea came from. And as I said, it's not an original idea. Um, it is, I'm, I, I do in my book credit Anne McClintock for that idea. I mean, it's, I must remember the name of the book. I use it every day and I've just gone blank on it. But she, she writes about South Africa in very, very fascinating ways. And that was one of the ways that she describes patriarchy. So...
Sure. I mean, I think that, first of all, I'm just happy to hear that the book is going along, what I will, is coming along. What I will tell you as somebody who's written a book is that there is no time. The book writes itself. It tells you what it wants to be. Uh, you, you find yourself writing things you wouldn't have otherwise written about <laughs> and you're not sure how it's going to land. But at the end of the day, when it's done, when it is, when all the words have come out of you, it's going to say to you, Gail, sis, we're done. And you're going to know. So that, that excites me. And I think take your time and I think it will, it'll, it'll come before you're 98. <laughs> <laughs> I am sure. But you would black. Crack, but that's pushing. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, we are. We. I'm very, very lucky to be a black woman, and, and I'm sure you feel the same way. It's a, an incredible experience. You know, I was um, thinking that um, one of the reasons I feel that um, black women are progressing faster than uh, most of us would have thought is because of that system that you count, of us having been the maids, the caretakers, and watching these white men work, you know, watching what they did kind of has really been helpful to us because then it's cut through some of the bullshit that we would have otherwise have put up with. Um, and I think the time is now, the time is right, which is why we, going to have the first female black vice president in the United States. But I also don't want to be romantic about uh, feminism because not feminism about the fact that we've got a female black, female black uh, vice president, everything's going to be great. And then, you know, it's wonderful, but I, I, I do have worries about um, her being the only one, which she has said as well. What do you think, um, it's going to mean for all of us black women around the world to have Kamala Harris be such an integral part of the White House um, in, in terms of the policies that Donald Trump was going to pass to say women can't have abortions as if it's men's rights. What do you think it's going to mean um, for, for, for us, in a, for those of us who are really 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 proud of that moment and i know you are both both you and i posted about it well i i'm very proud of it but i mean as a south african i'm also proud of the fact that this is not new to us we've had a woman deputy before right and actually i mean america is always like behind the rest of the world indira gandhi you name it the yes. global south and <laughs> women in high office so while i'm very proud of kamala it's also a gesture to North Americans because they have such, you know, dominant editorial force and see themselves as firsts. So it is also a moment to say, well done, but you ain't the first. But that, <laughs> that said, I mean, I think that it, it, it really, really matters, you know, just as justice must not just be done it must be seen to be done it matters to have people who look like us in positions of high office it has it, it really helps to have people who look like us advocating for change and using their power to bring change so i think that it will be a significant moment for all of us but i mean when you opened you said something about you're so proud to be a black woman and i agree with you but more than that i'm very happy and proud to be a black south african woman and i'm not a nationalist. I'm not a nationalist. I don't want to sound like one of those rah-rah South African nationalists. But the fact of the matter is that women from this country have got a long, long tradition of struggle against inequality and injustice. You know, we have a long history of leading organizations but not being recognized. So we know what Kamala is up against in, in the White House. And that is why I think she carries so much of our hopes and our aspirations. We know that articulate, outspoken, incisive, wonderful, beautiful, happening black women are actually more common than the world will recognize. And that's why we always have to be firsts, right? Meanwhile, we know, Lord, if I open the door, like 70 million of us will fall out, right? But so 
so for us, you know, globally, yeah, absolutely great. I think it's wonderful. But I think we must also not underestimate the power of white supremacy and its enduring tenacity to cling. And, and the fact that just as Michelle Obama was racially profiled and vilified in the press that Kamala will absolutely receive the same. The things Donald Trump has said about her already, right? But um, I think the thing about Kamala Harris is that she's come up and she understands the meaning of, of having come up through the ranks. And so she's, I think, very well supported. Um, and she has a, a, a very strong network. And I think that's the difference between you know, women who have built communities of solidarity and feminist practice over the course of a career, as opposed to, you know, women who just sort of pop up at the top as if they made themselves and then they kick back the ladder for anyone else. You know, those women. And then wave goodbye at us. And we're like, but sis, <laughs> hell. Look, I think it's good. I mean, I'm always amused when, um, international women who are black and you know also biracial are celebrated you know yeah. um, because as a colored person I always think well if I become deputy vice president you know people are also going to, I'm also going to be celebrated what are people going to do with my coloredness like you know I always wonder about that because you see there was this guy this week um the FA one of the F football association in England he got fired calling black people colored people it was called, it was deemed inappropriate and racist. And he said other racist things, he was a nasty racist. But I was interested in the way in which the British press reported on colored as a derogatory term, thinking, but actually that's, that's, that's my racial label. It's not necessarily No, but it, I mean, I understand why. It's no. only in South Africa. Exactly. The only that label is used and people are very discomforted by it. I get it, right? But I was just laughing about like Kamala and Megan, you know, women who identify like me as black, right? Um, but who are of sort of mixed race. Right. But I don't, I, don't, I don't identify myself as mixed race because from, it's not a South African thing. I mean, if I went around saying I'm mixed race, people would laugh at me. <laughs> Trevor, Trevor Noah says you're massive mixed race. <laughs> race. Yes. That's the difference. Exactly. So, That's what he was saying. Like, he's mixed race. I mean, exactly. don't look at me. I know nothing about mixed race. <laughs> but you, you know, you said something so important to me when you said you are proud not only to be a black woman, but to be a black South African woman. And I think over the past year, we have really, as South African women, just been going through the most. You know, from Uyinene last year to the GBV cases rising up so much um, during, because of COVID. I mean, it's not like we were not being killed or maimed or whatever before. I mean, we've got Tsekhofato. So, even with things like that, you're still happy to be uh, a South African woman because I have, I won't lie to you, um, Gail, I'm, I'm having some tough moments as a feminist in South Africa with the way our bodies are just, like men feel like they have a right to them, they have a right to kill us, they have a right to muzzle us. And we live in fear for our girls and I'm like, I love our country. We are the same country when 1956, you know, on August the 9th, women got together of all colors to represent women and say, actually, we deserve rights. And you've, you've worked for the Human Rights Commission in this country. But I have, this year, I've been very disheartened. And so I want to ask you, do you still feel that way, even with everything that has happened to us, particularly in the last year and so? 
absolutely. Because the thing is, we she and just as you shouldn't judge a woman by the amount that she can bear and always be saying, oh, black women are so wonderful. I mean, are so wonderful because they, you know, they're the mothers of the nation. So we shouldn't judge women by the by the fact that they are systematically targeted by systems and or people and or organizations. You know, I mean, I think the thing is, we are not defined by the things that are done to us. That's, that's I mean, I, I am very, very proud of being a black South African woman throughout all of this, because the thing is that we have a long tradition of resistance. We have a long tradition of, of resilience. And we will, we have made, we will continue to make incremental change as we go along. We'll continue to pass the baton. Um, and I think that, it's not that I'm arguing for South African exceptionalism. I'm really not suggesting that. What I am saying is that because we were governed by apartheid, which was such a specific system and was so structured and constructed, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the apartheid state was like the Nazis. They were so sure of themselves. They documented everything. So everything is documented. Their rationale for where we, it's all there. Nothing is hidden. You can go and find it all you know and so for me what it then means when I say I'm proud of being a black South African woman I mean that we have been over generations women who have had to push back and understand in graphic and intimate detail the various systems that are oppressing us and we have had to with all of this coming down on us still had to navigate our way out of it. And the thing is, when you walk into a place as a black South African woman and you speak as a black South African woman, globally, people still do listen to you because mm -hmm. our struggle has such a global resonance. Mm -hmm. And nowhere that I have been in the world when I have, you know, I articulate very, very clearly that not only am I a black woman, I am a black South African woman. And I don't say that to be a nationalist, but I say it to situate myself in a particular geopolitical, historical and revolutionary context. Um, so everything that we've gone through, everything that we're going through, these are not incidental facts. These are the consequence of a long, long history of misogynoir that was legalized. You know, we were the bottom of the pile. Um, and so, you know, even in 19, when was it? 1950, I don't know, 56 or 19. When did Mandela come to South? Oh, Mandela, Nelson Mandela came to Johannesburg in 1939. I think the war had just started. So, yeah, the Second World War. Anyway, so, you know, he had just... Come, I was going to go somewhere with this about misogynoir and hatred. Oh, and he was, he never wanted to be a lawyer. He really wasn't interested in being a lawyer, Nelson Mandela. He, he's, he's, you know, he was a pampered son of a chief, you know, and so when he was at Fort Hare, he's, he's, um, a, he's, cousin or nephew, Matanzima, kept saying, study law, study law. And he was like, I don't want to study law. I want to be an interpreter and I want to work. He really wanted to be a collaborator, essentially. And it was only when Johannesburg, when he came to Johannesburg, that he switched and chose to become a lawyer because Johannesburg really boxed him and made him like, you know, a couple of snob clapper there and woke him up. Right. But one of the things that I found in researching the Winnie book, you know, which is these newspaper reports, actually not newspaper reports, a sociological report from McGill University in Canada about the law in South Africa. At that very time when Nelson Mandela was wanting to become a lawyer, there were these cases where this person had just juxtapositioned the rape cases of white men against black women versus the other. There were no rape cases against, um, against you know, white men for the rape of black women. And in fact, there were harsh sentences. You know, native men who merely looked at white women would get lashes and hard labor. And black women who were routinely being raped by white men were just not, you know, the court was unapologetic and it's, we will never believe the word of a native woman. You know, literally that overt. So the historic hatred of black women and what we see today is a continuation of something that's very long and very, very entrenched. Um, and so it doesn't make me feel less proud of being a South African woman. It makes me more proud because it shows that we have never accepted it and we will never accept it. And this new generation shows me that 
And I feel, I mean, I literally am at an age where I have consciously handed over the baton because it's in good hands. Mm. Um, so yeah, am I proud to be a South African woman? I'm absolutely proud to be a South African woman. Am I ashamed of the misogynoir and the hatred of black women in this country? Absolutely, but it's not my shame to carry. It's not our shame to carry. It's the people who created the system. It's the people who benefited from the system and it's not us, you know, so. Oh, I love that. Um, I think it was Toni Morrison, and I'm paraphrasing, who said um, the, the, the label is not for the labeled to carry, it's for the one who's the labeler, because, you know, we, <laughs> I love her, she's amazing, because it oh, makes sense. She's my, she's my north, oh. my south, my, my west, oh. honestly. <laughs> my noonday meal and my Sunday rest. <laughs> I love her. Oh. She was, she she, she is and was, in my opinion, the greatest living writer ever, mm. right? And she's still the greatest writer ever for me personally. And when I went to Harvard, she had just stopped teaching there the year before. Oh, my God. When you did your Neiman Fellowship. Oh, no. Oh. Where's that class? They were like, oh, no, that ended, honey. She ain't here no more. I was like, oh, no. What? I know, I know. I mean, I just, yeah, Morrison. Anyway, Morrison was is my all. Just Honestly, in, no, incredible. Just she's incredible. actually the reason that I ended up writing about Winnie. I mean, that's actually really? the reason. Yeah, because I mean, you know, I'm I was born in 1969, so Winnie Mandela is completely part of my childhood, part of my teens, part of my early 20s, part of my 30s. You know, Winnie Mandela has been a feature of my life in my entire life. And so I really loved her and she was this revolutionary woman that I was so proud of. And then I go to London in 1995 and suddenly she's persona non grata. The university changes the, the name of the student bar from the Winnie Mandela bar to the Nelson Mandela bar. The newspapers are just full of this reportage of her just being this nasty, whip-wielding sadist and a crook and suddenly a global narrative shifts now I mean when you've loved your mother your whole life and suddenly the whole world's talking poorly about your mother you kind of gonna go how is going on now right and also you arrive in London in 1995 you know apartheid has just ended everybody's like oh South Africa South Africa people are interested in you but you dare not speak your mother's name for the shame. So you cannot speak your mother's name, even though you know your mother won this revolution, but you cannot speak your mother's name because everywhere you go, people are just tut-tutting. Oh, when you might tell you, barbarian, look at what she did. She killed that child. So I was just in a bit of a like, I didn't, I really didn't know how to process it. I have to be honest. And then I read Beloved. Oh, right. Oh. And just like that, Toni Morrison gave me all the tools I needed. She gave me, and the irony for me is in retrospectively tracing it back, you see the years. Stompy dies in this year, and then like two or three years later, you know, Beloved comes out, and then Morrison wins the big prize for it. And it's so weird how these things. What happened with Stompy almost foreshadows what happens in Beloved, right? And mm -hmm. it was Morris, Tony Morrison that really gave me the tools to begin to resolve how I felt about my mother, Winnie, not my real mother, Shirley, whom I never had to wrestle with how I feel about my real mother, Shirley, but how I then feel about this political mother, right? It's through Morrison, through reading Beloved and beginning to understand and, and really study the text and, and, and broaden out my readings of Morrison and other theorists that I did then begin to understand a way of understanding this, this flawed mother, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, for me, Morrison is, I mean, just, uh, the, the, I just was no greater writer. She had a capacity to write fiction she had an incredible capacity to write non-fiction there was nothing she could not do mm. with this and she was difficult which i loved you know yeah. she was like yeah our lives are hard why must our writing about it be easy exactly. you try to be black. 
<laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. But I also love what she said about if there's a book um, that you want written and write it yourself. You have to write it, right? And I was like, oh shit, she's right. I'm gonna have to write this book myself because nobody had written about being a black woman the way I was experiencing it. And then I read that quote, then I was like, she's like, she called me out. It was like she called me out. I was like, okay, I can't complain. Always uh, does. That's yeah. why I love Madison. She's the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, Every is. sentence, I'm like, oh, let me just write that down. Then I'm like, you can't, I can't rewrite the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. And that's exactly how I ended up doing, the, you know, wanting, because I did Winnie as my MA thesis. Mm. But just realizing, well, yeah, this is the book that hasn't been written. Lots of books, lots of biographies have been written about her. But the book I want to write hasn't been written. Yeah. Long it takes. Let me rather wrestle with the book that I write, you know? Exactly. Um, so exactly. So why, I mean, you, you said something like, you said... Uh, Toni Morrison was considered to be difficult. And I think women, the moment we start talking for ourselves, we're, and we don't really care what anybody thinks, we are difficult. We are um, intimidating. And so I want to ask whether or not that's true, subjective, you experience whichever way you experience us. But why do you think feminism and feminists are so, they get people's backs against the wall? I mean, men, you know, but even some women. What is it about it that just scares everybody where it's like, oh my God, run for the hills. It's like, here are these rabid, crazy women who are going to start telling us all how the world is shit. And it's like, no, why don't you listen? Why don't you just pay some attention? You could learn something. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that people don't want to give up privilege. And of course, they're going to be made to feel uncomfortable. White people didn't particularly like the anti-apartheid struggle much. They didn't say, well, oh, you're making me feel so uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, that's the point. I'm trying to make you feel uncomfortable. Exactly. Um, but the thing is, it's also about, you know, feminism was demonized in a particular way. And that's exactly, that's the backlash to feminism. Feminists were making such advances and they were doing them in a time and a terrain where there was a particular expectation of femininity. And that's how patriarchy works. If you're a well put together woman and you're not too scary, you get into spaces. But if you come into a space and you're just like looking a little bit disheveled, <laughs> you know, so it was about the demonization of feminism um, in the 70s, the 80s, and especially in South Africa, because, and it still goes on, where there's this idea that feminism is a white woman's imposition. So of course people would be feeling, well, it's not for me. And I mean, I personally, personally as Gail, myself, I mean, having grown up as a black girl in a very dangerous township in South Africa, you know, being nice and being liked is really irrelevant to me because my survival <laughs> so on being irrelevant. My survival depended on the being able to kick someone's teeth in or take a bloody bottle and break it and defend myself. I didn't choose that life. Apartheid chose it for me. So, you know, my thing is just, I am, as Winnie Mandela said, they made me. She said that in so many interviews, they made me. So this monster that you're so scared of you made this monster and that's why people are scared of feminists because feminism is not about being nice and also patriarchy is very beneficial to women right so they're women who benefit from patriarchy and they don't really want to dismantle it because they will dismantle their own privileges right so it's all very nice to be like a feminist amandla with the other women until the feminists at your husband's job say actually you don't deserve that post then your feminism's out <laughs> the window salary is in jeopardy that's not feminism no. you know my thing is just i don't have to like you as a woman i really don't some feminists are absolute assholes i there's some people that i'm just like oh god i can't stand you that <laughs> yeah and i will not defend them that does not mean that i will not that i will allow someone else to impugn their dignity for me that is what feminism is about solidarity feminism is about lifting other women feminism is about defending being prepared to go to the wall for a woman even if you don't like her mm. you know and i think 
much of what is expected of us as women is to be nice and get along. You know, my thing is I don't have to, I really, really, really don't have to like a woman. But if you start demeaning that woman in front of me, you're going to have a problem basically, you know. So for me, why are people so scared of feminism? They're scared of feminism with good reason because feminism, feminists want social justice and they demand change and they're not going to stay silent in the face of oppression, you know. And who is it? Not Morrison, but Mazen Maya Angelou who said we must always be at war with oppression. And I think that for me, that is really what Ooh. a feminist is. Yeah, that's... It's somebody who wants to make the world better for everyone, not just for themselves. You know, oh, so I don't know if I answered your question, but... No, no, you did. I was just writing down that we must be at war. That uh, my Angelou quote about we must always be at war with oppression because I feel like it's when we decide that we're happy in our cages where we really, really have a huge problem. Now, you mentioned something that I wanted us to touch on and I'm glad how our conversation is just organic. You were talking about the women who are... Are with you until you know they realize the 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 husband privilege uh, is going to be in jeopardy. Then they're like, no, 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 no. And both of us are women of a particular age, and we uh, both are unmarried, um, and we don't have children. And there is something about marriage and being in um, in in coupledom in some way. Uh, for women that I mean is made to make us feel like we our living is now justified like our, there's a reason why you're here I mean they even say um, he's making an honest woman out of you which means if you're not then what were you before which is just the most strangest most bizarre thing to ever say and that it becomes a question you get asked in your 40s. If, if you're with somebody, when is it going to happen? If you're not, why? And I realized there is something about keeping women in relationships, keeping women in marriages that works for patriarchy. Like this is something that's just like, oh, this is a structure that works for, for people who want comfort and people who don't. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you, why is it so important? Why is it so important for women to be married and be made an honest woman out of um, um, for patriarchy? Why? Why is that? <laughs> why should we be owned? <laughs> now, and I'm, I'm all for marriage, by the way. Hey, I think you must do whatever you want to do. Just because I'm not married doesn't mean I think other people should not get married. And I think that's not what Gail is saying either. But the institution is the institution, right? Well, I think with respect to marriage, a woman of a certain age needs to have a couple of snaps with relation, in relation to marriage. So when people say, you know, um, why are you not married? Or, and are you married? I say, why must I get married? What did I do wrong? <laughs> it immediately shuts them up. Another one is, um, oh, no, darling, I'm very happy up on the shelf with a fine crystal. Let the mugs get used. So, yeah, that usually stops the smug Marys from asking you rubbish about marriage. I'm just exactly, like, oh. please. But I, mean, I think that, you know, obviously marriage is, it, it is a patriarchal. It was one of the earliest patriarchal institutions because what it did was it, you know, it sort of cemented, you know, so a man would marry a woman and then he would own her land and he would own her and the children and the dogs and the cats and the lambs and everything. So it was very much a contract. It's very much a contract. For me personally, you know, it's also just, it's something that I saw on the L Word. Do you remember that show, the lesbian yeah. show? show there's one speech in which one of the women um, speaks about marriage as an institution of conformity right and that's also another thing I say to people because I'm not for conformity you know as soon as people get married as soon as my wife my husband the whole notion of marriage and family is very much a construct and attached to all of those constructs the notion of wife husband this power it's 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 a, it's a subtextual thing and so it dictates relationships it is issues 
issues related to age, family and marriage is, 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 a, is a structure that relates not only to gender, but also to age. So families have certain expectations that fathers can speak to children and women in particular ways, right? So for me, that's the stuff about marriage that I personally don't, I don't subscribe to. Like, I love weddings. You want me at your wedding. Oh my God. Oh, I love weddings. Oh, I love weddings. I don't believe in marriage, but you want me at your wedding. I really, really do, right? Um, but I just think that, you know, especially in a patriarchal society, as soon as you're married, men give you legitimacy. And that's, the, that's why feminists push up back against, why should children who are born to women are not married be called legitimate? Why should a man confer legitimacy on women and children? That's my issue with married as a construct. And I speak as a child from a marriage where there were two children outside of that marriage who were always being made to feel, in my opinion, as if they were less than. And for me, as a child born on the right side, I was always questioning this inherent desire to put children on levels you know why were my brother and I elevated and my sisters weren't so I questioned that a lot as a child and I those are the things about marriage and families that I find so objectionable but the thing is marriage is also a contract and so it gives you a certain kind of legitimacy and so I think that if you as a feminist understand marriage its role and how it works and you meet a man that you love and you can work out the details. I think marriage can be a fine vehicle. It's when people start expecting things, like you're now married, now you must get up at two o'clock in the morning and fry up a breakfast or whatever the hell wives do. I don't know. <laughs> because I'm open to marriage, by the way. In 2018, I had an epiphany. I was like, okay, maybe I will just try my own wedding. <laughs> <laughs> South Africa is like that. It's like, uh, it's a pissing competition when women get together. You know, it's just a matter, you just set your clock before the first woman says, oh, my, my husband. husband. You know, I'm sorry, but if you really are so proud of the fact that you have a husband and it's such a, I just personally, do you girl, for me personally, I would rather be saying, oh, I've got a ficus that looks so beautiful. I've looked after it for 16 years. You know, for me, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. Men are like buses, you know, you'd light a cigarette and one will come. <laughs> men are not a prize. My mother taught me that. My mother was very clear. She was like, men are not a prize. And one of the things my mother said to me over and over when I was a little girl and a woman and all of that, she'd be like, a man worth running after has yet to be born. Yep. And I agree. I'm never, men will come to you. One thing I know, you know, so my husband is waiting for me. I'll let you know when the wedding will be. I will be at the wedding. Thank you very much. Okay. And I will extend the same invitation to you the day <laughs> should it happen. You want to get married though. You know, I'm either here nor there about it. Um, okay. I think that for me, when equality is the most important thing when we see each other as partners. And I think that I have been guilty of being in relationships and being that person who is making the meal, not at two in the morning, but, you know, I'm making the breakfast and I'm doing the this and the things are not being reciprocated. And I think that's okay. I think part of being middle-aged is, is understanding the things that you deserve. And Nina Simone said, you've got to know when to leave the room when love is no longer being served, right? So my thing is, I'm, I, as, long as, as long as it's been served out there, but my, I'm not invalidated because I'm not married and I don't have children. I think, as you say, should I meet that wonderful, great person, then yes. Otherwise, no, I feel just fine by myself just just fine i like having options it's it's fabulous uh, having options <laughs> you know what i would say don't diagnose yourself with depression make sure you're not surrounded by assholes before you diagnose yourself exactly with depression. I think that for me let me tell you something very frankly 
that you maybe, I don't know if you've dated outside of South Africa, but I think maybe South African women also need to recognize that we, we, we operate in a very weird kind of masculinity. And I promise you, I, I travel with Tinder. And mm -hmm. let me tell you, it's been one of the most affirming things ever. Really? Okay? I don't know if you've dated outside. That's when you realize the difference in kinds of masculinity. Because what I have never been called intimidated. I love going to Italy to travel with Tinder. Um, <laughs> but I have never had an Italian man call me intimidating. I have never, ever, ever been made to feel like I'm too much as a woman. And I think what we need to do is, it's not that we are too strong. It's that we're operating in a society where our masculinity is so fragile. Yeah. And honestly, I, when I first started traveling with Tinder, um, my self-esteem was so low that I was swiping left on these absolutely beautiful Italian men. I was going, oh, Drew, he'll never like me. Swipe. Oh, Drew, he'll never like me. One day, in a moment, I was like, oh my God, no, Giorgio, I thank you, beautiful baby. And I swiped right. And he had already chosen me. Oh, wow. You're like, shit. That was the moment I realized that it is about Get out of South Africa because the thing is, dating inside of this this gene pool really is just asking for trouble. Yep. I feel when I travel with Tinder, I feel validated as a woman. I feel safe. I feel, and and that was the big realization for me that actually made me realize, well, maybe my anti-marriage stance comes from a particular context. Because it is possible to have a more egalitarian marriage because I see people having it outside. You know, I think people who've had them, you know, but also just if you open yourself up to men who are into conversations with strong women who are, who beam at you. You know, one of the Italian men I dated, I showed him a video of myself on YouTube. He didn't speak a word of English. No English. It was so lovely. Oh, I loved it. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Italian. <laughs> but he was so proud of me. He barely knew me. We were at dinner and he took my YouTube video and he showed it to his cousin. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I thought, wow, this guy is not like, because there I was speaking about human rights. And, and he was just not intimidated by me. So, I mean, I think, you know, I'm open to marriage because I found a different kind of masculinity that is not intimidated by me. I found men who are not, who don't want me to be small, who do not think that I should be seen and not heard, you know, for whom making me, you know, on one of the last days in my Airbnb, this very Italian man, I said to him, you know, and through Google Translate, I was Google, giving him Google <laughs> Translate. Like, you know, I've got to check out at 12 and we got to clean this flat so I can get out of here. So he was like, yeah, yeah, he was understanding. I run to the shower. I'm showering. I come out. The man has cleaned the kitchen. The pots are put away. The baby's up. Oh, wow. Really? Really? He had done the most. I came out of the shower and he was just like, there were a couple of things, like dirty towels, whatever, whatever. And the place was clean. You know, the owners arrived, he speaks Italian, they were delighted, we parted, you know, and that's the difference in, in, in a kind of masculinity that for me, and I'm not just saying that European men have it, there are South African men who do have it, but they are rare and they're hard to find, you know. They are, in the main funny that you, uh, you asked me that, because now I was telling a friend of mine that I have decided to widen my dating net. Um, because I've now seen exactly the, the, the thing that you've seen. And I think I'm, no, I know I am tired of having to be a little less bright so that somebody else can be seen. I can't do that anymore. And so I, I actually told one of my friends, I said, yeah, I am now really, really, and it's because it's of what you're saying, just seeing a lot of my friends and people I know who are, dating all kinds of people from all over the world and you see the happiness and you realize oh actually we have post-traumatic stress from apartheid okay we have post-traumatic stress for being in concentration camps that they called um townships so 
the guys who come from there, whose women are raped and then nobody validates them. The, the men who come out of that are really men who need therapy and time and, and really to go within and not to go to a shibin, but really go within and say, why do I do this? And so that's, that's it's, I think maybe you're calling it into being for me because I was like, okay, girl, it's time to... Do what you can do. Take out one month of Tinder. Just pay for one month. Okay. Set, it to, set it to wherever. What I do, just set it to Italy or wherever, right? Yeah. Choose a place where you like the look of the people because if you choose... <laughs> <laughs> so just choose a place and then see what you get you i mean for me that was the eye opener it was like realizing that even now because tinder's changed their settings during lockdown so yeah. you can actually choose it to a specific geographic location and for me it's quite interesting to then see what comes back right just as an Experiment for yourself. I mean, Tinder, and also Tinder is a laugh a minute. If you feel it, you must get it. Tinder is for when you feel <laughs> like those days where you feel like Nina Simone and you're just like, life is like, you open Tinder and you start swiping, you laugh until your sides hurt. You really well. I'm but anyway, I digress. I'm going to tell you what I think. So my last question, Gail, is so last year I did some work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on gender equality. And we got together with uh, women from um, Nigeria uh, and women from um, Kenya because our issues are similar but not the same. So while there is no... Um, genital mutilation in South Africa, well, not as prevalent as it is in Kenya, uh, per se, we also have terrible um, GBV stats. And one of the statistics that came out, which shocked me, and it's, it's the thing that I really wanted to discuss with you before we go, was that they estimate that it's gonna take 108 years for true gender equality um to be actualized so for women to get paid the same for um for just for everything else for for the ground to be even and that's really over a century over a century and yes patriarchy has been happening for longer white supremacy for longer so it makes sense that it takes this long but we've made some serious strides in the last five to ten years whether it's the me too movement in the states or it's our uh sentence shut down here but what do you think it's going to take if you minus the uh, century but what do you think it's going to take to move the needle because we're making incremental um differences and changes and we are fighting that oppression but she was centuries a long time. And I think, as you say, the, the young women now are amazing. They're strong, they're woke, they're fighting. But what can all of us as women around the world do to get ourselves to this? And it's not a utopia, but to get ourselves to a place where we don't even have to talk about the rights of women and, and girls. Oh, that is a tall order. That's one of the reasons why, you know, um, I think that people who have children have a different relationship with future, right? You're more invested in the future when you have children, in my opinion, because you have these kids that are going to outlive you. So you, you, you invested in a different way. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not pessimistic about it at all, because as I said, this new generation gives me hope. I think that you can already see, you know, the, the, the differences that we've made as, as black women, as women of color around the globe. I think that we, we are seeing change and we will see change. How that happens, how long that's going to take, it will take a long time. But I do believe that each generation just pushes it a little bit further, right? And, and, and so for me, I take heart from that fact, the, you know, the fact that some things, the things that are taken for granted now, that, you know, you, people take them for granted, but they don't realize that 15, 20 years ago, they were not acceptable. If you think about natural hair, I have an Afro and I've been wearing an Afro 
for, I don't know, I started wearing an Afro in 1989 or something, right? Um, but I know that for a decade, my Afro was always read as unkempt, as disheveled. I was always putting up, you know, I worked at L magazine with an Afro, you know, and they were like, what the hell? Everybody else had weaves. But you think about the difference that black women have made in the last 15 to 20 years in terms of making natural hair, not only part of the mainstream, but it's now become, of course, as per usual, this giant commodity. So you need to see it in those. We make giant strides in some spaces and little strides in others, but over the generations. Yeah, I mean, you know, it goes in fits and starts. We make giant leaps. You also must not under the, the problem with getting too down and depressed is that you always have to look back a little bit, right? And you have to just look at what we've achieved just in the last 25 to 30 years. We've achieved abortion rights. That's huge. It's vast, right? We've achieved what are the other rights we've achieved? We've achieved the right to bodily integrity. We've achieved the right to own land, which we couldn't before, you know. And so we do have to also recognize where we are in order to understand what's needed for the next step. And so while there is a focus very much on inequality and black women's um, murder and rape and femicide and all of those things, and we must be cognizant of them, we must not be defined by the things that are done against us. We must always be cognizant of the victories and the struggles that went into those victories and be sure that we enable you know, the women and girls and allies that are going to continue the struggle for the next however hundred years with the knowledge of what came before. Otherwise, you do feel like it's interminable. But if you just think about the fact that, you know, 25 years ago, if you were pregnant, you had to find, you know, I mean, I remember in my friendship circle, you know, we all remember, oh my God, you know, a doctor, I'm pregnant. Yeah, okay, let me sort it out. Those days, that was, this ain't no mobile phone. This is a ring, ring. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Yep. use the networks to find the doctor that will provide a TOP under the table with nobody knowing. So for me, those are the things that I take pride in as a woman, because I think that otherwise it gets so heavy and you just feel like we're never going to win this struggle. But I think there's always room for hope and for optimism because we're more than just struggle and pain and injustice, you know. We also are creative and beautiful and artistic and we, we do so much. And I mean, as one of my old friends, Audrey Brown, would say when we'd be listening to gospel music, you know, hungover on a Sunday morning, we'd be listening to the gospel, not actually going to church. She would always comment, oh God, black people just make such beauty out of pain and oppression. No. You know, these came out of slavery, you know, these spirituals, the songs we sang and it was so exquisitely beautiful, but they came from such pain and despair. Look at where we are now. It was those songs that propelled us. So don't give up is what I would say. I think that it is depressing sometimes, but we've made many great strides. So, yeah. I think this interview, um, happened in my life when it needed to happen because you have been, this has been like a a masterclass in um, um, getting older with intent, you know? Um, And I think the intent for me is something that I decided was just to live in light and be positive and be happy. And what you have done is educated me, which is (laughs) great to, to know that optimism really is important in order to manifest a life that is in light and beautiful and enlightened. And it's, it's, you just, what you said to me is, Lerato, yes, it's going to get tough. Yes, 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 yes. But fear does not yield any positive results. Worry is useless. So just have a spring in your step, um, believe that everything will be great and look at how much you've done. Look at how much we have done. And so I'm just so grateful for it. And I'm-
entitled. That's the other thing. You must always remember you are entitled to joy. You yeah. are entitled to moments of peace. You are entitled to moments of self-congratulation. Because black women are always being lauded for being so strong, we never stop and say, wow, well done. Well done, just to yourself. We immediately jump to the next challenge and the next. So always remember that you are worthy. You are worthy just as you are. You don't have to do one more thing. Right now you are worthy. Because as black women, there is this incessant expectation that you keep doing. And I always say to my friends, because they, we achieve amazing things. We achieve amazing things and then move on to the next thing without taking that time to congratulate ourselves, to say, well done, to tick it off in that big script in the sky, you know. So really, that for me is really, really critical that we really, really must stop and appreciate what we have achieved, what you've achieved personally. Um, because we don't do it enough as black women and people laud us for our strength and our capacity to suffer, but they very often celebrate our victories and our wins. And that's why you must do it for yourself. You really must. That's why our mutual friend Farah Francis reveres you because she worked with you, saw you every day. And this energy that you have, this, this, you're just amazing girl. You have literally in this past hour, transformed me in ways that you do not know like you have no idea what you have done for me like for me personally like you have just yeah you've just validated me you've just given me a lot to think about and made me go yes I'm, all the decisions i've made are right and i've done so much and i am worthy and i don't have to do a single thing but be my damn self so Thank you, for, thank you for your life. Thank you for your words. Thank you for really being for us as women, for us as South African women, for us as African people. You, 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 you really are amazing. I mean, I say this often when I meet a woman who just moves me. It's a, it's a quote that Maya Angelou uses, that you are a daughter in whom God is pleased, and you are that. You are just, you have done us more than justice you've lifted us higher and higher and i'm so grateful for your life and i'm i thank you for this time i thank you for existing um be like i'm going to text you and just tell you a lot call you and tell you a lot because you understand why this interview has been so transformative for me thank you thank you thank you for having me i really enjoyed it and just remember <laughs> Come back to the queens and the crowns, right? James Baldwin said, your crown has been bought and paid for. All you have to do is put it on. Yes. Oh, he's also one of my favorites. Also one of my favorites. Thank you so much, Gail. Be blessed. And Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lerato. I really, really loved it. It was amazing. Okay.